Well, today, finally, after putting it off about two, maybe three times now, we return to our series on prophecy. And I almost, I was debating it up there, actually, whether I should, because another thought hit me as I was here this morning, uh, whether we should change it right away. But I decided I'd stick with this one. And I hope that was the right choice, Eleanor. You think so? You think so? Okay. So we're looking at now our fifth message in our series on prophecy. <clears throat> and now we come to the Antichrist. The first message I uh, intend, Lord willing, to give uh, on him, the Antichrist. And I've entitled this one, A Profile. But I want to remind you of several things we said at the beginning. Because sometimes we get so wrapped up in the excitement of trying to match events with prophecies in the Scripture that we really forget the purpose of Scripture. So I want to bring your mind back to some of the uh, reasons why God has given us Scripture. First of all, according to the Word of God, as we've seen, prophecy is meant to confirm that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God, the only true and living God who is sovereign over all. That is the primary purpose. And God demonstrates this by doing what no one else can do. And that is to tell the beginning from the end accurately. He does, he is able to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. And how it's going to end before it ends with pinpoint accuracy. He's able to do this because he lives outside of time. The scripture says he inhabits, he lives in eternity. But yet he's able to communicate his mind and his will to man who lives in time. So in actuality, we have a message from out of space coming to us in this time. And therefore, prophecy is unique. It is something only God can do with complete accuracy. It is unassailable proof that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the true and living God. No one can imitate or counterfeit God in this. They can attempt to give prophecy, but they always fail. They cannot do it accurately. Only God, the true and living God. And he has communicated to us from out of space, another time dimension, through this right here. You don't have to send spaceships into space or have all kinds of complicated instruments to try to hear something from somebody out there. It has already been given and you hold it in your hand. We call it the Bible. But secondly, prophecies also reveal, also to reveal the person and program of Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, John tells, me that, tells us that prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the life story of Jesus Christ. It tells us who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing in the world. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of John. John is the one that God uses, that Jesus Christ uses, to communicate about himself and his plan. Prophecy is intended for us to learn more about who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing in the world. But thirdly, prophecy is also to validate the Bible as being the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. If there's any one thing that can do this and do it with power, it's prophecy. No other literature. We have all kinds of people, of course, claiming to give prophecies throughout the years, throughout the ages. 
But it's only the Bible that gives us prophecy that does not fail, does not err, does not make a mistake. It's always on target. Fourthly, prophecy is also to demonstrate that accurate interpretation of prophetic events stabilizes the believer's faith and encourages holy living. We've seen that again and again by the Apostle Paul, especially, but also by Jesus Christ. Prophecy is meant, an accurate interpretation of prophecy, especially concerning the sequence of events, is meant to stabilize our faith. So we do not become disturbed that we're going to be left behind or that the rapture has already occurred or anything like that. Proper interpretation of Scripture stabilizes the faith of the believer and encourages us to live holy lives. It doesn't encourage us to sit back and just wait for things to happen. It encourages us to live holy lives in anticipation of the any moment return of Jesus Christ. Now, as you recall, we looked at panoramic views of prophecy as given by, I should say, the last days, as given by Daniel, Paul, and Jesus Christ. Panoramic views. Now, as we go on, we're going to be looking in detail, snapshots of these panoramic pictures, but give you an overall picture first before we land, as it were. Now, today, we want to present another panoramic view, or rather a profile, of the main character of the last days, apart from Jesus Christ himself. There's one person who's going to stand out in the last days. And ironically, many Christians seem to be looking for this one more than they're looking for Jesus Christ himself. We want to correct that. Don't look for the Antichrist. Look for Jesus Christ. Amen? But yet, because of his prominence in the last days and in prophetic history, it's important for God's people to be a little aware of who this person is. And so today we want to give the first in a study on the profile of the one we call the Antichrist. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 11 for this. Now, many people have tried to uh, graphically illustrate what the Antichrist would look like based on his uh, descriptions in different passages of Scripture. Here is one of the many graphics that are used to portray uh, the many biblical references to Antichrist. Now, this particular one here is, a, is an artist's impression of the Antichrist who, when he's described in the book of Revelation as the beast out of the sea. All right? The beast out of the sea. And we're going to be looking at these graphics and the heads and the crowns and all of those later on. But this is a picture of him as seen by one of the artists. Okay, let's begin our study then of the Word of God or, and this profile of the Antichrist by looking, first of all, at the many names that are given to the Antichrist. Now, we have tended to settle only on one name when we talk about this personage. We talk about the Antichrist. But when you get right down to it, that's really not the best name for him, as we'll see as we go along. In fact, John is the only one who calls him that. You see, Paul calls him by different names. But we're going to look, not at all of them, of course, because we've got over 80 of them, and we cannot look at each one of them. But here is what, some of what we call the allusions 
because you have to read the entire text and you will see that some of the texts allude uh, to the Antichrist, although he's not called specifically by that name or so on. And if you took a look, take a look at, this, at the screen, you see these Old Testament allusions. The adversary, the Assyrian, that's the name I prefer to call him, the Assyrian, Belial, bloody and deceitful man, branch of the terrible ones, chief prince, crooked serpent, cruel one, destroyer of the Gentiles. And I want you to get all these names as I go along. Write them down. Enemy, <laughs> enemy, evil one, evil man, head over many countries, head of the northern army, idol, shepherd, king of princes, king of Babylon, the little horn. It's a very significant one in the book of Daniel. The man of the earth, merchant with balances of deceit. It's called the mighty man. He's even called the nail. The prince that shall come, the prince of Tyre, profane, wicked prince of Israel, the proud man, rod of God's anger, the seed of the serpent, a son of the morning, the spoiler, the destroyer. Those are two other names that I like to look on. The vile person, the violent man, man the wicked one, and the willful king. That's the Old Testament allusions. Now you go to the New Testament and you have these. He's called the angel of the bottomless pit. It's called the Antichrist, meaning, now again, it's a pseudo-Christ, one who tries to look like Christ. It's really not one who opposes Christ, although that's involved. We normally focus on that, but he tries to imitate Christ. He's the great counterfeiter. That's what you have to look at when you study this guy. He's called the beast, the false prophet, the, fa I'm sorry, uh, the father of lie, the lawless one, the man of sin, one come in his own name, Prince of Darkness, Son of Perdition, a star, unclean spirit, vine of the earth. These are some of the allusions that are given to the one that we like to call the Antichrist. But you know, interestingly, there's only one passage that seems to identify his physical looks, his physical appearance, uh, description, appearance, and that's in Zechariah 12, 17. And this is what the prophet says when he describes him. Woe to the worthless shepherd, that's one of his names, who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. This has to do with a wound. On his right arm and his right eye. His arm will be totally withered. And his right eye will be blind. Now we'll be looking at this because this seems to describe some terrible injury to the Antichrist. That... Some say that he will appear to die from, but then revive again. It says as a way, it is claimed that this is a way of imitating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, and it's because of this wound that he will get from his enemies and so on. This is the only though physical description we can find in such a dramatic way. But now we want to begin by looking at this passage today, Daniel chapter 11. And I want to give you the background of this passage because it, that's what it does in verse 35. And I want you to follow along. This is what it says in verse 35 of Daniel 11. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined. Now he's talking about Israel and you need to read the whole context here. And uh, he say, some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined. Notice, so that they may be refined. That's the purpose purified and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The end and everything is about, will happen as God plans it, but during this process, some of his people will be persecuted, be refined. 
In other words, it's saying that the suffering of the faithful was God's way of purifying them and will continue until the return of Jesus Christ to set up his kingdom. Now, really, we could spend a whole series on this principle, this concept of God's purpose for trials and sufferings in your life and in my life. When God allows it or when he brings it, it's for the purpose of refining us to making us to become more Christ-like. And that's why I continue to say to all of you as members of the incredible body of Christ, when you go through times of pain and suffering, really don't begin by praying, say, oh Lord, why, and take it away. Say, Lord, give me the grace, the power, the strength I need to undergo this time of trial in a way that honors and glorifies you. That's what God is trying to do. And that's what he says here. And will go right on until his plan is completed. Now look at verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. This is a reference to the one we call the Antichrist. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. I want you to see here the sovereignty of God still underlines everything. All of these things only happen until God says stop it. He's still in control. Just never forget that. And so this is an overview then, these verses, of the Antichrist's rise and fall, right here. An overview of his rise and fall. But I want you to notice one important thing here. And that is that specific prophecy of the Antichrist begins here at verse 36. In other words, there's a gap of more than 2,000 years between verses 35 and 36. Verse 35 says, some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Then, that then is 2,000 years away from verse 35. Then the king will do as he pleases. That's important when it comes to sequence as you read these scriptures. All right, that's the background. Let's begin now doing exposition of the passages beginning at verse 36. The first part of it says... He will do as he pleases. This is the Antichrist now. In other words, he will be an absolute dictator. No laws will prevent him from doing what he wants to do. Paul says the same thing, if you recall, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is what Paul says. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. This is the day of the Lord. Unless the apostasy comes first. Falling away. Some even look at this as referring to... The rapture. But we see it as a falling away from the faith. And the man of lawlessness. You see that term? Perhaps this is the best name for him as far as I'm concerned. The man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. In other words, this is a man who does not obey the law at all. He does not regard the law at all. He opposes and exalts himself about every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Laws will mean no, nothing to this Antichrist, this lawless one. He will be an absolute dictator. But then secondly, the second part of the verse, he will try to be like God. Does that remind you of anyone? Satan, Lucifer, 
I will be like the Most High. Actually, this is Satan personified. He's still trying to do the same thing. Now he's doing it through an individual. And we're going to see how important this is in understanding the lawless one, the Assyrian, the man of sin, the Antichrist. You have to see this man as one who is totally possessed by Satan, the evil one. He will try to be like God. The text says, and he will exalt and magnify himself. See, now, he, who's doing the magnification and the exaltation? He is. He will exalt and magnify himself. By the way, there's some people, you know, even in the church who try to do that. This is Satan's first sin. This is where pride comes in. And Paul talks about choosing of a pastor of an elder. He said, don't let him be a novice. A young believer, why? Because he might fall into the same sin Satan fell into, sin of pride, become, because he becomes exalted. He think, thinks that his position is uh, some, uh, more important than being godly or being true to God. He will make himself God and blaspheme the true God with blasphemies that have never been uttered before by any man. Now, we're going to be looking later on at these passages. In fact, look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. It says, He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. Now, you know how he's going to be doing this? By what he says. This man is going to have a mouth. I wonder if he's going to be Bahamian. <laughs> but he's going to wear down the saints with his mouth, what he says. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. There's a religious group out here now says that the Pope is the Antichrist. And he's already done this by changing the day of worship. And all those who worship on this particular day is doing so because they have the mark of Satan, the mark of the beast upon them. Why? Because... The Pope, they say, the one who changed the day of worship. That's a mark. That's a sign that you belong to the Antichrist and if you don't follow and so on. And so it's already being demonstrated today. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. That's three and a half years. He's speaking of the latter part of the seven-year time of tribulation that dispensations look at, those of us who believe this. The last three and a half years. This is the period he's talking about, not the first part. And there's quite a division between the first and the second part of the tribulation. Revelation 13.5 says, There was given to him a mouth speaking. Now notice, it was given to him. Who do you think gave it to him? God allowed Satan to give it to him. It came, first of all, immediate. From Satan, but God allowed it. We're going to see how it ties in to the book of Thessalonians. When Paul talking, people are going to be deceived. And God is going to cause the people who hear him uh, to believe a lie. A great deceit. This is it. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act 42 months. This is another phrase, 42 months, for time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years. That's all he has. And he knows it. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. 
those who dwell within him around him. That is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, you know, there is a tabernacle in heaven. Do you realize that? There is. And this is some reference. In other words, this warfare is not only going on on earth, it's going to impact heaven as well. That's why when the final cleansing of, uh, is, 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 is done, the heavens as well as earth will be cleansed by fire. Here's something else, verse 37. It says that he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women. This is quite an interesting text. You should see some of the commentators go home on this one. For instance, some have taken the phrase, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers as indicating that the Antichrist will be a Jew. Because they say they're talking about the Jewish religion, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of that. He will have no regard for that. However, this phrase does not have to necessarily refer to the Jews alone. It could, mean, it could mean also that he will not follow the religious traditions of his, of, of his ancestors, no matter who they may be. He's not following anything. He's going to make it new. He's going to do something different. So this does not necessarily mean that he's going to be a Jew. Many commentators take this passage to show that. I don't believe that this necessarily shows that. All right. Now it could, but it does not necessarily do that. Now notice this one. He will show no regard for the gods of his father or for the one desired by woman, women. Now this one really goes it down. Some say that this phrase, one desired by women, should be translated, he will have no desire for women. Not that he will show no regard for the one desired by women. But rather, they say that the best translation of this or rather, as it is in the King James Version, it says, he will have no desire for women. That's how the King James vision, uh, Version translated. But we believe that the best translation is, he will show no regard for the one desired by women. Let me explain what I mean. You see, if you take it, he will have no desire for women. This has led many to believe that the Antichrist will be homosexual because he'll have no desire for women. However, I believe that the translation that we gave you, he will show no regard for the one desired of women, is probably the best translation because this means that he would show no regard for the Messiah, who, whom all Jewish women desired to be the mother of. In other words, all Jewish mothers were looking forward to be the mother of the Messiah. So when you put it in a Jewish context, it seems to make more sense that he will have no regard for this one that all the Jewish women desire to be the mother of, which is Jesus Christ or the Messiah. That seems to be the best interpretation. I don't think it has to do anything with homosexuality at all. <clears throat> now, another way of looking at the text is that to see that he might be too, he'll be so preoccupied with what he is doing in trying to imitate Jesus Christ, he will have no time for women. He's going to have no time for women. He has one single mind. One, his heart is directed toward one thing, and that's to be like God. And he's not going to get distracted by women. That's how some look at it as well. And that could also be true. So you need to put it together and see how what you come up with here in this one. But the idea is he will be so concerned with carrying out his plan 
that is given to him by Satan, that he will have an interest in nothing else, including women. All right? The Antichrist will proclaim himself to be God, but it will be the kind of God we look at in this new age, postmodern world. He will magnify himself above every other God. Now, this is before the rapture. Because we won't know, or when I say we, the church won't know who the, who the Antichrist is. Because if you believe that there's a rapture, he will not, remember we looked at this before in Second Thessalonians, he won't be revealed until after the rapture. That doesn't mean he won't be on earth. He will be doing all kinds of things, some described here, but we won't know it's the Antichrist. He will be exposed, he will be revealed, after the church is taken away, you see. And the world will, but then after that, the world will then be astounded by his miraculous powers and his military genius. I mean, he will be getting a reputation while the church is here. Now, of course, the church will have some idea, but we will not know specifically. But he will be gaining his reputation in the first three and a half year period. That's when he gains his reputation, doing all of these miraculous things. Being a man of peace. Of course, you'll see that he takes the same view many people take, that you can only be a man of peace if you're a man of war. Isn't that right? But how can you maintain peace if you don't have the power to do it? That's the position of the United States, by the way. Basically speaking. Speak from a position of power. You see, that's the same thing here. And he's going to be gaining a reputation during this thing. But after the rapture, he is then revealed to the world and everyone will know that his power is from Satan. He will curse and blaspheme the true God in heaven while publicly honoring the God of forces. Which he will see, will point to Satan of course, but he will take it on to himself. But immediately after the rapture occurs, if you accept the rapture position, everyone in the world will understand that Satan is the real reason for the incredible power and abilities of Jesus Christ. We'll see that as we go along. We read Revelation 13 and Daniel 11, and you will see this. Now, if you go back to 2 Thessalonians 2 that we looked at before, you will see that Paul alludes to this when, it's, when he states that the Antichrist will be exposed, disclosed, uncovered. In other words, he will be doing such a great counterfeit job as to who he is that no one will really be able at this point to determine that his power comes from the devil. It's not until after the church is taken away. Then the great delusion comes on. The result of the great delusion comes on. All right. In other words, what I'm saying here is, we will see, the church will see the coming of the Antichrist when he first appears on the world scene as a man endowed with supernatural power. But we will not see him revealed as Satan incarnate because this satanic union will not happen until immediately after the rapture takes place. That's when Satan really comes to possess him. It seems that the restrainer now does not allow that to happen. But when he is removed then Satan will be able to uh, control and possess this individual completely, 100%. Now go back to verse 36, the last portion of it. 
It says he will be successful. Isn't that great? All of us are looking for success. Satan will have his man with a plan. And he will be successful in carrying it out. He will be successful. But now I want you to see, the scripture tells us very clearly, this is only in keeping with God's determined time for him. And that's until Israel's chastening is completed. In other words, the Antichrist will be successful in carrying out his plan until God is finished dealing with the Jewish nation for rejecting him. God is using the Antichrist to discipline his people. We don't like this truth, but it happens all the time. God uses your unsaved boss sometime to discipline you as a Christian. You go, there's a job, and you're working out, and you do something just to get on or just to get a little bit of money, and even your unsaved boss will say, I thought you were a Christian. It happens all the time. God uses unclean vessels to discipline his holy ones. Be careful with that. He will be successful, but only until God is finished with his discipline of the nation of Israel. Notice what the text says. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. Whose indignation? God's. Against whom? His people. For that which is decreed will be done. This is the decree will of God. Whatever God has decreed will be done. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can stop it. And God has decreed that his people will be disciplined because of their rejection of him. And that's why the church can be satisfied that they will not have a part in the wrath of God during this particular time. Why? Because God's wrath here has to do with the people of Israel. Not the church. That's why it's important to make a distinction between Israel and the church, which we will do sometime here. So, God will use Antichrist's wrath against Israel as his own for their rejection of Christ at his first coming. And only his second coming will put an end to their sufferings. Now look at verse 38. This man will actually worship war. Instead of them, that is, these gods, he will honor a god of fortress, a god of war, a god of might. War is this man's god. And he's saying this because that's what he will dedicate his time and energy to. A god unknown to his fathers, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. This seems to be a reference to the time when he when he finally establishes an image of himself in the holy place, in the newly built temple in Jerusalem. And this statue would be quite an expensive, costly one here. This is where all the money of the people that goes to the government during that day will go. You know the government likes to use our money for doing all kind of foolishness. That's what he's going to do here. Honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will be a man of war, characterized by war. Now this won't come into fruition until after the rapture, second half of the tribulation. It is his God. And his honoring this God, as I say, probably refers to the image that he will erect in the Jewish temple. 
It would be made out of gold, silver, precious stones, costing perhaps millions, if not billions, of dollars. Number five, verse 30. He will be bold in his military feats. In other words, because he's so strong and so powerful, got so much money and everything he needs to fight war, he ain't going to be scared of nobody. He will attack. Notice what it says. He will attack the mightiest fortress with the help of a foreign god. That's Satan. The god of his own creation. He believes that he has all the power he needs behind him to do anything he wants. God's people he doesn't fear. Israel's God he doesn't fear. He will not be afraid or hesitant to attack or take on any military power. And you see, the thing is, he's going to gain so many victories after victory after victory that he's coming to a point of belief that, boy, ain't nobody could beat me. But he's going to be in for rude awakening. Look at verse 39. He will reward his followers, his cronies. Remember now, he's head of the government. Don't lose sight of this. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. You're talking about political payoffs? It is. Of course, we do it today, right? Right? You believe that politicians pay off those who? Sure you do. That's going to happen here, and he's going to pay them off. Give them positions that they probably don't deserve or even don't qualify for, but then give it to them. And he will give them parcel for a price. In other words, you want this nice piece of property on Paradise Beach, Paradise Island? Well, you do this and you got it. You know, that's why I always remember the words of uh, Cecil Card, right? I, I think of this man with so much affection. He said, you all go there talking about building big home on the beach. He said, when the rapture comes, the Antichrist can come to Nassau and use that home that you built. And I believe that could happen. I really believe it. If not him himself, his cronies. Rewards will be taken in two major forms here. He will make them rulers over many people, and also he will distribute the land at a reasonable price for them if they serve him, and so on. In other words, land for reward in doing what he wants them. This is religious and political payoffs. It's, going to, it's something we get, we're used to doing it. We're doing it here. We're doing it in the state, doing it all over. It's going to be something that's done, but he's going to do it in a maximized fashion. Daniel next predicts the military career of Antichrist and of his judgment. Notice what he says in verse 40. At the time of the end, that is during the last seven years of Daniel's 490-year prophecy, the 70th week, remember we talked about that? This last seven weeks of the 490 weeks. Did you all remember that? Well, this is what we're talking about here, the last of the, last of the week, the 70th week. He says, the king of the south, that's Egypt, will engage him, that's the Antichrist, in battle. And the king of the north, in this context, it's Syria, not Russia. The king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. This will be a huge army. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He's just going to roll over them. No stopping. 
Egypt and Syria will unite to attack the Antichrist. Because remember, not all of the nations are going to immediately fall under him. Some are going to give themselves over to him right away. Others he's got to fight for. These are two of them, Egypt and Syria. And surprisingly, to see Egypt there, but it will be. They will do this by attacking Israel. Because now Israel, of course, will be the one, and we'll talk about this later, where the Antichrist enters into a seven-year pact to provide peace for them. And so these people are going to attack Israel. You see, they will attack Israel, who will be under the protection of the Antichrist because of the covenant. Antichrist will be the most powerful ruler in the world by this time. So they're taking on quite a task. In other words, to show that he is true to the covenant he made with Israel, he has to, he has to defend Israel by fighting against those who attack Israel. And this is the battle we have now. It appears as though Antichrist will go from north to south. One in the first place he will overturn, then according to this passage, is Syria. First, the same as the first country he will overthrow is Syria and then <coughs> Egypt. Verse 41. We'll go into detail of this at another time. This is just an overview. 41. He will also invade the beautiful land. The be I love that phrase. That's referring to Israel. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. Now, this is God speaking. He's giving detailed, detailed information concerning what will happen. Who will fall and who will not fall. You cannot in any way imitate this. He will move through Palestine. That's the beautiful land. Taking cities and countries as he goes. But for some reason, now we don't know why, Edom and Moab and Ammon will not be conquered. He seems not to be able to overthrow these, these countries. Perhaps it's because they are all situated, situated in the east of Israel on the other side of Jordan and would sort of be out of his way to get there. But these are not conquered for some reason. Verse 42. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control. And again, you'll see the reason why he talked about Egypt. Because, you know, this is a, plays a special role. And he will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver. And all the riches of Egypt. That's why he wants Egypt. With the Libyans and Nubians, that's Ethiopia, in submission. Now this word uh, here, in submission, is a funny word in, in Hebrew. It means at his heels or in his steps. It seems to mean that he will conquer Egypt, but apparently he will not completely conquer Libya and Ethiopia. Some reason because they're following close behind. Or I, We really don't know what this really means. But they won't be able to conquer these places anyway. Verse 44. Here's the important thing. As he's going through this now, this war with these people, this is where what we call the Battle of Armageddon. Actually, this is where the battles begin. Keep this in mind. There's no such thing as the Battle of Armageddon. It's only that, the, that these battles you see here will climax in the place called Armageddon. Because when Christ comes to fight all these people, there ain't going to be no fight. He's going to wipe them out all one time. So really, it only refers to the place. We have battles all along. It's going to climax in Armageddon. Notice verse 44. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. Now, something, some message is coming to him, going to get him angry and cause him to turn back. 
This is an interesting passage. So while enjoying his victory in Egypt, the Antichrist will receive news probably that Israel is about to be attacked in a military action from the east and west of Palestine. Now this is another group coming at Israel. Now I believe that this probably refers to the battle we call Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I know there's some difference here. Some believe that this comes before the rapture, others believe that it comes afterwards. I believe it's a little closer to it one way or the other. Now the Russia, now this is the battle that Russia will be involved in. That's why I believe it's going to occur before the rapture. Russia is involved in this and the alliance has already been made. It's already been made. With Iran, Syria, the alliance has already been made. Russia from the north and one of its allies, Iran, that was, called ancient, that was Persia, of course, in the east, will attempt to conquer Israel. Now, this alliance was predicted in Scripture hundreds of years ago, and it just came about, and no one thought that it would ever happen, but it did. Now, when will this happen? It will happen when Israel feels safe in a land. When will she feel safe in the land? When the Antichrist goes into this contract to protect them. They feel safe. That's the time this is going to happen. All right? Now, some more details, but let's go to verse 45. It says, He will pitch his royal tents between the seas, or the sea, and the beautiful holy mountain. This is his headquarters now. He will set up his headquarters on the Mount of Zion. This is where Jerusalem and the temple are, of course. He will be thinking now that he's going to make Jerusalem his headquarters. He will try to make Jerusalem to be the head of the new revived. Actually, I don't like to say revived. I think the proper word is revised Roman Empire. A revised Roman Empire. It will be obvious that Russia and allies will be destroyed immediately, supernaturally. So you could see Russia and Iran and all those. It's not Israel or America who's going to destroy those armies. It's going to be God. Now, how he's going to do it, we don't know. He might use a mountain, but it's going to be done supernaturally, powerfully, and all at once. Now, the thing is, though, when these armies, when Russia and Iran and comes against Israel and it is destroyed supernaturally, guess what? Antichrist can say, he did it. And that's going to give him more reputation as well, and so on. This will be the time he claims to be God and begins to turn against Israel and usher in the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. But he will not be able to do this indefinitely. And we'll close. Look at verse says 45. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. You see that? He will come to his end. That's predetermined. No one, not even the devil. He thinks he's got the backing. But when you come here, he ain't there. The backing is gone. Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, and remember now, we just give an overview. Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, will destroy him by the power and brightness of his coming. Listen to what Paul says. I love this. Now, this might make me look like a warmonger or whatever, but I love this. Then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. 
when Jesus Christ comes in such glory and majestic beauty, and he just speaks the word, bam! Everybody's destroyed. That's Armageddon. Look what Daniel said. I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. This is a glorious sight. I want you to see now, this is when Jesus Christ is coming to set up his kingdom on the earth, and all the kingdoms of man will be destroyed. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This is what he was happening right now. This one who's presented the ancient of days as the true ruler will come. God's champion riding out of heaven with a sword in his mouth, and all the churches can be behind him. If you are a believer, you in this bunch, you come in to fight. Don't think you're going to heaven and sit on some porch and just drink, you know. You're coming back to fight before you rule. We've got, we got some twisted idea of heaven and what believers are going to do, you know. We're coming back to fight. We're coming back with him. Notice verse 34. He says, unto him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed that's the king of kings he shall reign forever and ever and ever and ever that's what it is all about amen and that will happen all right